Hello and welcome to the Public Health Insight Podcast. We will be engaging in interactive discussion of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. My name is Sully and I am joined by four of my friends. Ben. LaShawn. Gordon. And Will. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. All right, guys. So we're going to talk about a video that has piqued all of our interest, and it's basically how wildlife trade is linked to the coronavirus. It's by Vox on YouTube, and we're going to be sharing a link to it in the description of this podcast. So high-level summary is that it goes into the background of how these wet markets first originated in China and how the interactions between animals in these wet marks, sorry, in these wet markets uh, lead to the creation of these new viruses that majority of people are unprepared for. So what did you guys think about it? Um, so I want to say that like I just for the video, I think it's I really enjoyed it. I think it provided a pretty comprehensive like understanding and just like a very high level introduction to COVID. Um, I also think that it did a pretty neutral, unbiased I guess, way of presenting these wet markets. Mm. And overall, I think it was very um, educational. Just to share a bit of like my own personal experience. So I've, I've actually been to a couple of these wet markets in um, places in Asia. And I want to say that these places are very grim. So in the video, it talks about how um, you know, at these wet markets, you can find literally any kind of animal. You can find you know, things f- ranging from snakes, um, turtles, all the way up to like foxes, you know, ostriches, bats, like anything. You're, when you walk into these markets, you're essentially walking into an illegal zoo where instead of animals that you view for educational purposes or you or the animals are there for um conservation these are literally literally animals that you can pick out and purchase for either consumption or for medicinal purposes so i th- i just wanted to share a bit about that adding adding on to that cuz in the video it showed the animals were very close uh proximity to each other and they were packed packaged in unhygienic ways cuz the video made mention that extreme excrements from uh, different animals were falling on top of each other in the cages is that specifically to that wet market or have you seen that elsewhere as, as well oh tr- like trust me like these wet markets markets like they they're absolutely like like rancid like the the smell mm. it's it's horrible it's like imagine a farm but like in, in, in an even smaller space that's often um like poorly like ve- ventilated mm. And, and what's whatever right yeah and it's definitely like the point about having um excrements falling on top of each other because if you think about it from if you were if you were one of these animal traders the more you stack the more um area i guess the less area these crates and stuff take up so for example if you can like stack like six six crates of i don't know like baby deer on top of each other and you can have like four of these columns you know, you have like 24 deer rather than like having it spread out, right? Yeah. So I think just from that perspective, it's it would make sense for people to just cram as many animals as they can in this confined space. Yeah, that was a good point. This just kind of reminds me what I saw in the video, how the mm-hmm. government um, in China, they kind of passed some laws to make it okay to have these markets as a means to um, get 
individuals out of poverty. Yeah. I think so in the video it it did talk about how originally these markets were used as a means of I guess um like giving people access to essentially cheaper meat that they wouldn't have to buy. Yeah, like yeah. Compliment, complementing people's diets, right? Because right. I think with like all of the famines that went on in China right. in like right. the mm-hmm. post post second world war post civil war eras, like you know people were literally starving to death, you know, by the millions. And I think these were these were I think honestly like viable options because if if you can't raise you know, traditional farm animals, you can go into the wild yeah trap trap something and then bring it here and then exchange that and you know start a like have something to sustain you and your family and you know keep yourself alive you do what you got to do yeah, yeah definitely. i think the i think the video was quite telling in the fact that it really um showcased how there's a, a significant interaction between animals humans and the environment Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of reminds me about the concept of just One Health, which we learned in our MPH program. Do you want to share what um, what One Health is, LaShawn, for some of our viewers who might not be familiar with that term? So I think it's just, it's a very multidisciplinary field, I think. But it's basically looking at how the interaction between people, animals, and the environment. And it's looking at how to attain the best optimal health for them. Mm-hmm. Right. So basically essentially human health is animal health and environmental health all at the same time yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. okay yeah 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 the, i think the video definitely did a very good job kind of introducing the topic of one health or just zo- like zoonotic diseases which are just right. diseases that are animal of animal origin right because right. it starts off by talking about how um our seasonal influenza or other originated from chickens birds and pigs and how mm-hmm. things like HIV was said to originate from chimpanzees mm-hmm. and in yes a more contemporary context even the um, SARS epidemic or um, back in 2003 that originated from the civet cat which was you know a- another animal so it just really you know, s- and is that sets- civet cat that civet cat's also something commonly found in those wet markets um I, I would assume so just because like like I said earlier, these wet markets are essentially like zoos, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> any animal, pretty much anything that you can think of um, would probably be there, um, either mature form or in, in infant form, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not just like, um, like animals that are uh, native to China, right? It's also uh, some are imported. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Because I believe the wet market evolved from a point of trying to combat the famine to more of a luxurious item. I believe the video touched upon um, the importing of exotic animals like tigers and whatnot just to fulfill those purposes of um, the more um, uh, luxurious commodities. So, for example, when you have like a tiger's claws that would be sold at these wet markets as well. Yeah, no, you're 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 onto something because the what I think what the video was saying is uh, previously these animals that are now in the wildlife trade weren't originally in those wet markets. So now yep. you're cramming all the animals that you maybe usually sold before, uh, and as well as these new 
exotic animals all in one place. So then you have zoonosis with viruses jumping around. Yes. And then yeah. okay. And then we know we know um, that when uh, a virus mute, mutates from the uh, not the host but the reservoir, the animal reservoir, it can jump to an intermediary animal before infecting humans. Right. So the the mm-hmm. the key thing here to note is you basically you give the virus doesn't mutate with a goal in mind it's random mm. so when you have like 500 different species of animal in there there's a higher likelihood that it can jump to a different animal mm-hmm. so then and then we're and then we're in contact with those animals at the wet market and then mm. you have international travel globalization so then things spread within a matter of weeks so gordon mm. um i was just kind of curious like i was wondering if you could explain to our audience about um, maybe the transition from the animals to the humans and how it got there. Because I know it maybe um, passed through a couple of animals before it came to humans. So can you walk us through that process? Yeah, for for example, um, as Will mentioned, SARS and even, or you can say coronaviruses in general, they're usually, the their animal reservoirs in these cases is a bat, I believe. It's usually the horseshoe bat spe- uh, species. So the horseshoe bat and the, the, the unique thing with bats is that they are a good reservoir for viruses because of a unique feature in their bone marrow, which doesn't kill the virus. Mm-hmm. So what happens mm-hmm. is when you have um, these wet markets, for example, and, you know, bats come in contact or, or body fluid from these bats come in contact with other, other animals, the virus... Uh, would have been mutating while it's in the the bat, and now it has an opportunity to change a host. And the the key, the important thing here with the 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 intermediary animal is that humans typically don't interact with bats. Mm. So what you have here is when when you're when it comes closer to something, humans are in contact with either for recreational or or for you know consumption purposes. We're more likely going to be exposed. To these new viruses, hmm. which then has an opportunity to jump to us and cause infection and spread. I'm I'm also curious about just um, some of the backlash that I've been hearing of um, many xenophobic comments directed towards individuals living in China. Um, what what do you think about that? What what kind of message would you want to give to our audience? I think it's important to recognize and remember that. The majority of the people in China don't actually eat wild animals. And much like us here in North America or you know, elsewhere around the world, it's farm animals or animals that you know, we would consider, and this is I'm making air quotes here, you know, normal animals. Right? right. And that these people who do consume these wild animals are typically the rich and powerful, which is a small minor- minority of the people living in China or of the population there. So I think this video does a really good job in explaining how um, people in China, they themselves are victims to these conditions that led to the coronavirus pandemic. And that this virus is affecting many different countries, many different cultures, people of all walks of life. And that it's, this should never be a justification for making xenophobic or racist comments yeah Yeah, just 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 to add to that just to add to that the interesting thing is for if trick question where did the swine flu originate 
North America. Ah, uh, there we go. But no one is saying the North American virus. Mm-hmm. Right. So exactly. it's, it's the underlying stigma that people, the stereotypes that people already have mm-hmm. about certain kinds of people that are feeding into this narrative. Mm-hmm. So how would we mitigate these kind of unintended consequences? Because these individuals at these uh, markets didn't intend for um, COVID to come about and cause a pandemic so like for example um we know that um, temperatures are rising worldwide we know that this is also resulting in an increase in mosquito populations um because of warmer climates Mm -hmm. and these mosquitoes thrive in these warmer climates and it causes rapid rapid population growth and in turn this causes a greater rate of transmission which affects human health right right so Mm -hmm. It's just that I really want to know, like, what could we do as a global community to kind of prevent these adverse interactions, interactions that may cause these adverse outcomes to humans, the environment and many animals? It's a, it's a tough question, but yeah, I think it gets to the root of this, the one health interaction that we're talking about. I, th- I think to um, just to touch on a bit of that question is that um, the one health model does provide a sort of policy process to tackle such a question such like a situation where there's so many parts moving at play so for example the one health model is multidisciplinary because you're engaging people who work in the environment sector like ecologists wildlife experts you're engaging people in animal health veterinarians agricultural workers you got human health doctors public health practitioners nurses and you kind of have to bring them all to the table and figure out okay from your perspective and your stakeholder engagement what can we do so for example I was, I was curious to this and I looked into what has One Health actually done because, you know, you could just propose a model and it makes sense, but like, what are the actual results coming out of it? Mm-hmm. So in China, back in uh, March 2019, so they all came together and they had this great conference and four-day workshop to address rabies, right? So it was a stepwise approach to rabies elimination in China. They brought all the people that I mentioned And they were able to concretely say that we are going to look into improving the integration of data on human and animal rabies deaths, implement new approaches to determine how human rabies exposures, and strengthening laboratory diagnostic capacity for suspected animal and rabies cases. So these are objective things that we've been able to do. And I think what the way that COVID has um, hit the world is, like I said in in a previous podcast, it's so unprecedented. We're in a global community now where you can't just let these things slide by. Like, we have to come together, have these conversations, uh, and see what we can do about these wet markets. Because, as Will mentioned, it's only being... um, The the usage of these wet markets is by a small minority of affluent people. So why Mm -hmm. are are we suffering on a global scale for these groups of people, right? Mm -hmm. So I think um, policy planning has to be put into place once everyone's able to get out of quarantine. Right. So like you, like Ben and LaShawn alluded to, right? We're talking about One Health and it's not only COVID-19, right? Mm, So for example, you brought up um, involving veterinarians and the agricultural industry at the table. Yep. Right. And the reason for that is because, well, one of the reasons is they use a lot of antibiotics in their practices. Mm-hmm. Right. So when these I'm working on a project now that looks at pharmaceutical disposal, disposal 
and how that infect, affects the environment. So one of the things we found was uh, a lot of antibiotics end up leaching into the environment, right? And I think a lot of people know that this will have effects on wildlife. For example, aquatic animals like fish, there's um, a drug like birth control, for example, that has estrogen in it or synthetic estrogen, and it has been linked to the feminization of fish. So we're already seeing the effects of how our behavior influence our environment. But check this. the There's also uh, a drug that's an antibiotic. And antibiotics also leach in the environment. Mm. And the WHO, I think on LaShawn shared it with us, the their top the top 10 threats to global health. Antimicrobial resistance was a top 10. Mm, yeah, and what they're, what they're finding is, in some papers I've read, there are in wastewater effluents, so on where the surface water meets land, people have isolated new strains of antimicrobial resistant bacteria be- mm. because from just those micro trace concentrations in the water. Wow. So then you can say big deal, but then if these strains start to, you know, if we, if humans pick up these strains and get sick and infected with these strains, our natural first line antibiotics won't work. So you can see our behavior influencing the environment, which then influences how we can cope with whatever the world throws at us. Absolutely. So it's a very, it's a very complicated discussion that extends way beyond COVID-19. Yeah. Right. I think it's COVID-19 is going to be the catalyst to uh, the adoption of this model overall and how people can start shifting their paradigm to like, what, where does a virus come from? You know, it's not just, it came from randomly out of some animal. It's because right. we did X, mm-hmm. the environment and animals respond with Y, and now we're facing the consequences of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what did Dr. Trick say? That little matrix thing, deep sea, the, deep the, the pressures, yeah. deep sea, the pressures and how we put pressures on the microbe, our environment, and then it affects our health and stuff. Yeah, let me let me bring that up right now. Deep sea framework. The deep sea framework. Yes. There's political pressures, social pressures, economic pressures, and well, the D. I don't remember what the D so, was. So 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 the D is the driving force. Driving force. P that's was right. pressure. S was state. E is exposure, and E is effect. There so you when you mentioned the economic and the social and the clean, that's our driving force, right? But basically, it it's it kind of relates to the one health thing, right? Like we we well, we are we're always going to have consequences to what we do. We don't live in some microcosm. Okay, I'm going to play a devil's advocate here. Say like we all meet together in like this one health model where, you know, multidisciplinary uh kind of team is formed. Because if you remember, this whole market developed because of the famine that happened in the 1980s in China. So mm. people's businesses that are related to wildlife will be affected by whatever solution we propose. So what do you guys think about that? You hit the nail on the head, Sully. I, I was going to just mention that as well. So the Chinese government actually implemented a ban on all wildlife sales. And mm. as, as Sully mentioned, like minority of affluent people who have the appetite for these wildlife and it's often the people of lower socioeconomic status who are doing a lot of the trading. So with this ban, how do you guys think these lower income or lower SCS people will be affected? Right. Um, just to be clear, Will. Yes. Um, when you're mentioning this ban, is this ban as a result of the recent outbreak of COVID-19? Yes, exactly. 
Okay. Oh, didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So anything that is any wildlife trade that happens in China from now on is illegal. Yeah. Um, I believe. So I I heard that after SARS, they had a, implemented a similar ban during right. SARS, and that was eventually lifted. Right. Mm. I'm not sure if this one will eventually get lifted as well, but there were maybe six to eight species that the Chinese government considered were okay to eat. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess anything outside of that, those parameters are banned. Right. That was a good point because in the the video by Vox, it mentioned that even though in terms of China's revenue, the wildlife market is pr- pretty insignific- insignificant in the amount of money that it raises. It mentioned yeah. that they had a lot of lobbying power, mm. so it it's it, it it's interesting to see how long that law will stand, and maybe that goes back to your point of why it was kind of lifted after SARS ish in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess just to answer Will and Sully's question, um, in terms of it fitting in this One Health model and kind of incorporating what Ben said. He mentioned that uh, you really have to bring all stakeholders on the table from uh, different disciplines. And it's it's not just bringing them together, I think. It's about having intentional dialogue. So including um, individuals that are directly affected from any sort of ban. And I think it's important for uh, people in power to make sure that they, that they include um, individuals that are definitely going to be affected by this. And together, collaboratively find a solution yeah because for the people who are affected you know wildlife is their business and they're typically poor people um you you gotta find some other opportunities for them if like a ban on this scale happens right and yo that's a great point because guess what you remember what we learned in class about ebola and how it linked to the deep sea thing yeah the political pressures and economic pressures pushed people out into um, the forest to get that bush and meat. they started right they started um, interacting with maybe animals that they wouldn't ordinarily interact with in the case of Ebola and what you had was uh, long story short you had um, you know bats eating mangoes and then gorillas eating the contaminated mangoes and then people who were looking for food um you know they were pursuing bush meat and the easiest bush meat to get were the the gorillas that were sick yeah, yeah. so yeah, then that yeah. kind of perpetuated the spread of ebola as well and an interesting thing to say is that if you, even if you do you know create a ban right who's going to actually enforce that so these individuals like sure there's a ban but like they could all obviously just go out into the wilds and grab whatever food they do do need to eat it will just move to the black market Exactly. Right. Already, which you know, which which yeah. generates more money, right? Exactly. There's already an illegal <laughs> yeah. black market that exists. And the black market is often poorly regulated, so you're actually putting yourself at even a higher risk, you know, mm-hmm. of of improper inspections and things like that nature. So so do you think the solution then is to um more more in the sense of like the regulation of cannabis is that have government influence to structure it a lot better where you're not having situations or environments current to like that are similar to current wet markets, you know, don't have animals stacked on top of each other. Right. You have more regulations, more restrictions, make it more legit for a lack of a better word. So kind of like animal rights. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It it would make sense. But I think we have to consider that the ban was implemented in China. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as you guys know, with the I guess the Chinese political structure, it's very little, very little collective consulting. I'll say that. I'll just I'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, you can record a po- podcast without everyone sitting at the same table, which is what we're doing, by the way. If you if that wasn't clear. Okay. Bye. Remember. Public health is a field of inquiry and an arena for action to improve lives one population at a time. This has been the Public Health Insight Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please drop us a like and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your podcast platform of choice. You can also send us your questions, comments, and suggestions for discussion topics at thepublichealthinsight.gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.